You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, it's Pastor Brandon, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church in Europe, just moments away from entering into one of our sermon exhortations, and we are so thankful that you've come today to join with us for that experience. And here is our one ask of you for today's sermon. Would you work hard to stay focused all the way through the sermon? Like, I know that's really hard to do at sometimes, right? Like when you start going on 45 and one hour sermons, there can be just points where you get a little distracted. You start thinking about things on your phone, what you're going to do after church. But here's the thing. The whole word of God being preached through these sermons is so profitable for your life. Just believe that's true. And so if you can set that expectation for yourself this morning, that from the moment that this sermon comes on and I say, welcome to the book of Ephesians or whatever the sermon's going to be about, all the way until we get to the end where we say, it's in your beautiful, majestic name that we pray, amen. Man, everything in between those lines, lean in, focus, because God has something special for you. Let's be great imitators of Christ in how we listen to this sermon today. Grace and peace. It's time to march and worship through the book of Ephesians. Let's go. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, in just a little bit. As we continue forward in our Ephesians series titled Our Story into God's Story, I want to keep reminding you that this glorious, majestic series, this book is all about discovering who you are in light of everything that God has done. He's given you this amazing identity, and now deep Deep into our series, we're learning because of all these things that God has given us, who we are called to be and what are the activities that God is calling us to do. Now, here remains our faithful aim. If this is your first time and you're just leaning in with us for, um, for the first time ever in our Ephesians series, our hope here at Redemption City Church is that you would have a living encounter with the God of the universe, no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, in such a way that you would know that Jesus is real, that he is your hope. And we believe you can experience that as you open your heart and you soften your mind right now in the book of Ephesians. Now, last week in part 25, titled The Careful and Wise Christian, we looked at segment A of this conversation, and it was all about looking at wisdom and time management in light of eternity. And we learned that there's really only two real people groups in God's redeemed economy of thinking about people groups. And it's the saint people group, and it's the ain't people group, right? Like it's the saint people group, which means those who are in Christ, for Christ, submitting their entire lives to Christ. And then there's those who are the the ain't people group, and those that these are those that are outside of Christ. They're not submitting their, their lives to Christ. They do not acknowledge 
the Lord as Savior and ruler over their lives. And we learned that there's a three-step way that we can have confidence and assurance that we're part of that saint people group, right? And it's, number one, you gotta, you got to tap out, and you got to realize that you simply can't do it anymore on your own. And then you gotta, you got to look up and say, God, I can't, but you can. I'm the zero, but you're the hero. And then finally, we kind of talked, and we kind of waded through the waters about linking in to the God of the universe. And that's saying, man, I've come to the realization and the radical resolve that in you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you resolve to let him. So you, you tap out, you look up, and you link in. We learned that if Satan can't get you trapped up and tripped off all over sin and doing things that are forbidden to destroy your life, that he's going to wisely maneuver and to deceive and to try to devour you by getting you to do things to get you busy and separate it from God. We learned that the whole point of redeeming your time is to put the value back in everything areas and in seasons and in opportunities that have lost their value and redemptive original purpose in God. We, we, we learn that we are called to find biblical, not earthly, not secular, but biblical ways to put the value back in all these beautiful things and relationships and activities that God has given us to rightly enjoy. Because what we do is what we value. We talked about that, right? And what we value is what we do. And finally, we, we talked about the three qualities that you need to have to go about redeeming the time of effectively with true and genuine affections and that's a humble and a submissive heart an open and an unencumbered mind and you need a willingness and resolve to do whatever whatever Jesus is asking you to do. And that brings us to today, part 26 of this series, titled The Careful and the Wise Christian. And we're going to finish up now with segment B of this conversation. It's going to be all about looking at godly discernment, understanding God's will, and the warnings and the dangers of drunkenness. And like I said last week, we want to be, we all want to be careful and wise children of God, don't we? We want to be careful Christians. So moving the this conversation now towards the importance of really understanding and having godly discernment and really avoiding the dangers of drunkenness, man, it's a great start point for us to focus on today. So let's get ready to briefly read verses 1 through 18 to continue to remind ourselves of where we've been. And then we're going to kind of really quickly look at verses 15 and 16 that we camped out on last week. And then we're going to spend all of our time filleting open and seeing all that God has for us in verses. 17 and 18. All right, so let's put boots on the ground and let's get ready to enter into God's precious, his precious word. Here it is. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's what we've been called to do, folks. That is our, that's our mandate. That's our primary activity based upon our, 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 our glorious identity. Verse 2, and walk in love. We talked about love is patient, kind. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't demand its own way. We looked at that, and we do that as Christ loved us. What a high call, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh, remember verse 3, but... Oh, that's powerful. Hey, hey, do this, but don't do that. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named 
among you, as is proper among saints. Oh, that's so important. We got to walk in love, but we got to do it in a pure way. Remember, you can't detach holiness from love. It's love and holiness, love and purity, love and righteousness when we imitate God. Verse verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Hey, that's potty mouth talk, right? Which are out of place, but instead, oh, don't you love that? Don't do this, but do this. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Man, we got to be grateful, joyful, happy Christians. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is being an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We can't go around willfully sinning anymore, folks. That means that is an indication that we are uh, most likely not a child of God. That's a son of disobedience. Verse, Verse six, let no one, no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse seven, therefore, do do not become partakers with them. We talked about that, catch, that Captain Andrew John Smith spirit of the Titanic. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and, and true. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing, pleasing to the Lord. We got to be caring about that. We got to be discerners of that. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Man, don't just, don't just not be in the dark, but be an exposer. And we do that primarily by our righteousness, right? We talked about that. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's how we opened up the whole new year, right? We got to be awakened out of our spiritual slumber. Okay, now here, here we get closer to where we're at right now. Verse 15, look carefully, right? And we learned, or circumspectly, then how you walk, not as unwise, meaning a fool, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And now here comes our focus verses for today, and they are so wide, so big, so legit. Verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. What a gift that you and I have to be able to hear the precious words words of God. So we have so much to discuss and to activate in our lives. So let's prepare to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I woke up readying my heart to preach this message today, I was reminded so clearly how easily we are washed away from the godly pace towards that godly peace you desire us to have. And that's because the concerns and the trials and the attractions of this world, they pull us, God. And Lord, my heart is so burdened today because I see and I feel and I, all these pulls and these bends and these weights and the power of our culture 
that easily entangles us. God, our economy of thinking is just broken. We really do, we really do think, want to think like your son. But man, we get caught up in so many things that are far from his thoughts. We really do want to imitate and act like Jesus, but we get tripped up and we get trapped up on so many trivial things. Like, why can't we see your face more clearly, my God? Why are we such forgetful creatures, Lord? Why are our feelings so dominant in our decision-making? But I suppose the answer to these questions and the remedy to all of our plights is to simply cast our affections back onto you with the hopes of receiving renewed vision, unexpected breakthroughs, and radical appreciation for your patience as you steady your hand with unencumbered crafting of our sanctification. Lord, I don't want our corporate prayer at the beginning of this sermon to be empty this morning. I don't want that. Don't let it be so, God. So I request on behalf of each and every brother and sister listening today that you would graciously help us to treat your words spoken today with the highest level of respect and reverence and transformative action. May we tremble at even the slightest notion of disagreement within our hearts towards the things you say are incredibly important for us to consider today. That's it, Lord. That's enough. That's my prayer. Respect, reverence, and transformative expectation that you're going to show up for us today. It's because of your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Now, now, brothers and sisters, don't you just love, love, love how God meets us right where we're at? Like he's so patient and so kind in helping us to move the needle of our growth towards where he wants us to be, no matter where we're at on the journey. Like whether you are just a new Christian and you're just figuring it out, or you are a mature Christian and you are deepening out day by day, God in his patience and in his kindness keeps moving the needle to help us keep going and growing up across this process of sanctification. And we just don't deserve it, right? Like we really don't. We don't deserve his steady hand, but yet his hand remains so steady and so steady table within our lives that should that should humble us and isn't it just so crazy and so amazing and so otherworldly that we're all on Jesus' team like think about that that's crazy like old people and young people and tall people and short people and black people and white people and latino people and asian people and introverted people and extroverted people and 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 intellectually driven people and artistically driven people and dom- and democrats and republicans and male and female man we're just all we're all on Jesus' team, and that's legit. How is that possible? Only in Christ, folks. And yes, perhaps we're all at different stages of being on that team. We're all at different stages of our relationship with Jesus. Like some of us are really resistant to our Heavenly Father. Let's just call it what it is. And we're, we're struggling to just submit to him. We're avoiding him. And we're, we're kind of not walking in unity with our Father. And, and, and some of us, are, we're experiencing a lot of shame. We have some things in our life, some things in the dark. And so it's hard for us to approach our Heavenly Father. And, there, and there's other of us who are just simply, man, we're just trying to be obedient. We're trying to deepen our obedience and our affection for our Father. But you see, no matter what stage you're at, we're all on the same team. 
We're just at different stages, folks. And those different stages of how we need to, verse 14, awaken out of our sleep, man, that affects our present activities and what they're going to look like in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect and that you're never going to stumble as you learn how to be an awakened Christian, someone that stays awake in Christ, but it does mean that you can never ever go back to not seeing whatever place you're at with Jesus like you were before. Like you can never unsee Jesus. Are you tracking with me? You can only choose to walk away or to stay radically in the game with your Savior. But you can't you can't go about unseeing him. So once you are born again and you get this new identity with all these new activities, you have to make the decision to keep your eyes radically focused on Jesus, or you're going to fall into spiritual slumber. And Paul's saying, don't, don't do that. That's why Paul is urging the, the church in Ephesus, and I believe God is urging us today, and he's saying, wake up. Don't be sleep. Wake up. Get back on track with Jesus, particularly in the areas where you know you have fallen asleep. But folks, that requires trust radical, radical trust in the Lord for whatever and whenever he's calling you to be awakened in things. You've got to trust him. That's why Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 through 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Now, if you read that verse too quickly, you would think that Jeremiah just repeated himself twice, but he didn't. I want you to look with me again at that verse because it is legit. It's blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Man, that in and that is, is everything. Therefore, we're being called to trust in the Lord, meaning to trust what he says in this glorious book that we call the Bible, that is true, that is good, that it's not for our bad, but it's for our, it's for our good. But folks, we are also called to, tr- to have trust, uh, that our trust is the Lord, and that means establishing radically our confidence in who he is, his personhood, his character, his intentions towards us, and what he's done for us. So when you trust in the Lord and your trust is the Lord, you can taste and see that he is so good and that frees you up and that sets you up to not have to look back anymore at your past, at your sin, at your shame, questioning your heavenly father's goodness towards you, his redemptive qualities that have been established on behalf of you. You don't have to look back anymore, and you'll be able to awaken, awaken out of so many areas that you're asleep in that he's calling you to with joy and glad participation, folks, and you won't have fear and incredible reservation. And for those who are resolved to stick with Jesus on the team, and I I know I'm resolved, and I hope that you're resolved, we learned in verse 15 that our primary way of staying awake and staying on his team is by walking carefully. Or as we learned in the King James Version, walking circumspectly. And that means to radically, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25, keeping our eyes straight forward, our gaze straight forward at the cross and everything that God has done for us because of our new identity as we proceed forward with confidence into our new 
activities. Yet we are also called, remember, to wisely assess the dangers that are lurking and the distractions that come from the left and the right of us proverbially within our lives. As we finally look carefully at things behind us, we don't get stuck with things behind us, not our shame and our regret, but we carefully look at things behind us, being wise about our old man and his tendencies so we don't let him creep up on us. That's what it means to walk wisely with circumspection, right? And so Paul is urging us basically right here in the text saying, hey, don't be, don't be a fool. That's what we learned last week, right? He's giving us a strong, loving, serious expectation and exhortation to avoid the traps of busyness and distractions and other harmful activities done disproportionately that might take us off course with Jesus, and to not be a fool with our lives. Whether that's foolishly smoking or drinking or foolishly engaging in maybe a particularly hobby, a hobby that's done disproportionately or perhaps foolishly engaging in too many relationships that you can't really deepen and widen, really sustain in a profitable way or foolishly spending too much time on TV or entertainment or reading or anything done disproportionately that removes the redemptive, God-centered, God-glorifying qualities that they were intended to have within our lives. And for us to really camp out here and to get the serious implications of how important Paul's exhortation from God about not being a fool is, man, I wanted to take more time today really looking at a definition pastorally of what a biblical fool is so we don't miss what God is saying. We want to think about what a fool is from God's vantage point. So so here is this pastoral definition that I've put together, and I hope it's simple yet profound for your life. Here it is. Here's a biblical fool. A fool is a man or a woman who disregards both the activities God says we are to participate in as well as the activities God clearly forbids. This person isn't a one-time offender, but a repeat offender of this condition continuously. A fool often falls into the snare of foolish talk, crude joking, and filthy talk because of their ongoing dismissiveness and then progressive resistance and eventual rebellion towards the things of God. This individual is prone to make evil plans, not always with willful intent, but by mere virtue of their unfamiliarity with light and biblically fruitful works and godly characteristics and values. A fool uninterrupted from their condition ultimately arrives at the destinational anthem of there is no God, and their eventual verdict is death and separation from God. Man, that is a sobering, sobering reality. Because Paul is calling us to be wise and awake and not as people who disregard and discount God's commands in God's glorious book we call the Bible. And that starts with us watching out for Satan's attempt to take us out. Are you with me? It starts by watching out for Satan's attempt to take us out. Not always through the enticement to do bad and forbidden sinful things, but by his snake-like insidious enticement for us to be fools, utter 
fools getting caught up in busy things disproportionately that take our eyes off of, off of Jesus because Satan will love nothing more. Lean in with me. He would want nothing more than to get you tripped up and trapped up on things and busyness that remove your affections and your finances and your relationships away from what God has intended for you. Now, last week I asked you a really, really important question about how and if your activities are in accordance with God. So you've had a full week to think deeply about that. And I'm going to pose that question to you again because it's serious. We got to look at this. We got to be faithful with this. So here's that same important question. What are some poor and unwise activities you're making and you're operating under that are not in sync with your new identity in Christ according to Scripture? And let's just have some real talk right now, because whatever those activities are that you've written down, and gosh, folks, I hope you have some things written down on your paper, because every every one of us has some areas we're walking foolishly in. You're not exempt. So whatever those areas are, are you ready? Brother, sister, are you ready to, verse 16, redeem the time, specifically, specifically in those things that you've written down? Like, are you ready? Are you tired yet? Because we are so, chapter 1, chosen and adopted. Do you get that? God, the creator, God, he chose you to be in his family. Therefore, we're so, chapter 4, gifted and equipped for this work. He doesn't ask us to do things and give us a start point with the deficit, folks. So because we're, chapter 1, chosen and adopted, and we're, chapter 4, so equipped and gifted, that should set us up to be able to do what we have to do. And it shouldn't feel legalistic, but it should be joyfully transformative. Are you tracking? We as Christians, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians are called to really put the focus on putting the value back in the eras and the seasons and the opportunities that Jesus places before us. And folks, that's not supposed to be a burden. That's not legalistic. That's joyful opportunity. And that's exactly what you and I have to do as we examine our lives. We got to ask the question, what are we valuing? Man, my first organization, Making Much Christ Ministries, the tagline was, man, supremely valuing the supremely valuable in Jesus. Is he your greatest value? And how does that play out tangibly in your life? Because what you value is what you do, and what you do is what you value. I lay this axiom out for us, and it's so It's so true. And when you really start to take this whole redeeming the time thing seriously, life gets better, folks. It maybe doesn't get easier as we have to work through and change some things in our lives. But I promise, based upon the word of God, that things get better. And all you have to do to redeem the time is to have a humble heart and a submissive attitude and a genuine willingness to do whatever Jesus says in your activities, to radically step into the Christ-centered opportunities that he lays before you. You don't have to go around running around trying to be holy. Just step into the Christ-centered opportunities that he lays before you. It's all about finding creative ways, folks, to make much of Jesus. It's an opportunity for you and I to start asking ourselves questions like, is there an opportunity for me to make Jesus look good right now in this situation, in this conflict going on? with some people 
at my, at my job? Or, or how can Jesus be the target in my confession to my friend in some areas where there's been some wounds and some effects within our relationship? Can I make Jesus the target instead of my feelings and my emotions? Or how can God be most glorified as I discern what to do with that $1,000 bonus check that I didn't expect to get this week? from my boss, but I take that as a good gift from God. How can, how can God be glorified in what I do with it? Man, it's about seizing the opportunities, folks, that God lays before us. Now, do you remember that massive warning at the end of verse 16 um, from last week when it says, because the days are evil, redeem the time because the days are evil? Man, I'm just so thankful that Jesus directly talked to his disciple about his disciples about these evil days. Because it's nothing, there's nothing greater than looking to our Savior when he speaks directly about something. So let's take a deeper look at what the words of what the words of Jesus that collide in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 11 and 13, because it's 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 deep. You ready? Here we go. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. This is Jesus talking. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, so basically, Jesus was saying, hey, watch out. You're living in a dangerous and, and, and an evil era and season and time because many convincing, authoritative, woo-carrying, sounds like they're right, Captain John Andrew Smith-like people are going to try to redefine, lean in, they're going to try to redefine what you should value and where you should place your purpose in. He's telling us to watch out. It's like Jesus was saying, brothers and sisters, disciples, Peter, John, hey, watch out for lawlessness. You know what lawlessness means? It means, means watch out for the era and the season that you're living in when people stop caring about what my heavenly father says is valuable for you. That's what it means to be lawless, to not care about God's law that's been created for your good, not for your bad. It's like Jesus was saying, because if you don't, you're going to have a knife putting your ability to love yourself and others and ultimately God. And that's, that's so damaging and damning for your for your soul. It's like putting a knife in your ability to be patient and kind and gentle and to have the ability to have self-control and to not always demand your own way. And the results are going to be, folks, that you're cold and you're callous and past feeling those qualities from a God-centered, God-centered way. But I just, I just love how Jesus always combines the intensity of the situation. Watch out, false prophets, lawlessness. Arr! He does all that, but then he always combines it with perfected and wise hope that only Jesus can offer. Because verse, um, verse 13, remember what it says right here? Matthew, uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Therefore, we want to hold fast. We want to grab a hold of the opportunity to redeem the time and to look at things with great circumspection as our remedy for a culture that is built upon 
biblical lawlessness. They're just rejecting the things that God says. So we got to be careful and we got to be wise as our remedy so that we don't fall into that snare and that trap. And all this really comes down to knowing and obeying your father's heart, knowing your father's will. You ready? Discerning God's will. Well, for us to do that, we're going to have to keep tracking now to our main, our main verses right now, which is verse 17, so we can consider this even deeper. So here we go, verse, verse 17. So it says, look carefully or circumspectly than how you walk, not as unwise, meaning a fool, but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, because of all this that I've been saying, therefore, do not be foolish. Well, how, how Paul, how do we not be foolish? I don't want to be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, okay, so now Paul is taking this conversation to the deepest part of our, the ocean of our spiritual soul. And he's saying, don't just avoid being unwise and foolish. Don't just make the best use of the time by redeeming it, but also radically understand what God's will is for your life within the era and the season that you're living in. Like, you don't go around just redeeming the time the way you want based upon your economy of value and your thinking, but rather we are to practice the positional anthem in our hearts that says, what would Jesus do? That's why I wear it all the time, folks. That's the anthem in our heart. We say, what, Jesus, what would you do? So let me just exhort you here for a minute. Like, you may be an expert or something, and you may consider yourself a hard-working enthusiast at a few things in your life. I know that I do. Like, I'm a hard-working, enthusiastic participant in health and nutrition. Folks, I love health and talking about macronutrients and micronutrients and the importance of eating a healthy diet. I was a strength and nutrition coach for high-level athletes. So I'm a hard-working, enthusiastic participant in those areas. I'm also a hardworking, enthusiastic participant in mentorship and discipleship. I've, I've really centered my life around that. I even created a program called the Journeyman Discipleship Program based upon helping people have legitimate and effective discipleship. Man, I'm a hardworking, enthusiastic participant in financial stewardship. I love helping families turn the corner with their finances so they could be set up and freed up to live joyfully for Christ and others. So, so what about you? You are a hardworking, enthusiastic participant at something. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's sewing. Maybe it's fly fishing. Whatever it is, man, we're all enthusiastic about something. Okay, well, well, Paul is telling you and he's telling me, while those things are fine, we need to be radically focused on being an expert, enthusiastic, hardworking participant at understanding the will of the Lord. We got to discern the will of the Lord within our lives. We have to engulf ourselves towards towards that aim so 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 eyes up here with mind so clear because that's true check this out discerning god's will is how we become capable of not being a fool so that we can redeem the eras and the seasons so that we walk with circumspection i don't think you just heard that let me say it again 
Discerning God's will is how we become capable of not being fools, and it sets us up to redeem the eras and the seasons we live in so that we can walk with circumspection. And because that's true, we need to be radically confident that we know how to discern our Heavenly Father's will. we got to know how to do that. So let me give you three wise biblical ways that we can go about discerning God's will. And the order matters in the text, okay? So here's the first one. Primarily, we discern God's will through the Word of God. Man, this is our first stop, folks. We can't keep turning to every other alternative. This is our main way of knowing God's will. You see, God's word, it leads to our salvation. Although many of us may have come to Christ by hearing about him from another person, the way of salvation is most radically revealed by reading the words of God. And the reality is, we are, we're, we are all being saved by believing the truth of Scripture. Whether we've read it for ourselves personally or someone else taught it to us, which talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we all are saved primarily through the Word of God in this book we call the Bible. You see, God's Word directs us to wisdom. That's why it says in Psalms chapter 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. Do you see that on the screen? It gives understanding to the simple. Therefore, Scripture is our greatest hope of discerning God's wills and knowing our Heavenly Father's his thoughts. Because, but if we neglect Check with me. But if we neglect to read and to obey the words of God or the teachings of the word of God, we won't be able to distinguish our Heavenly Father's heart and we won't be a discerner of his will. And that, that sets us up to be confused and dangerous children separate from our Father. But you see, God's word does more than just let us know what his heart is towards us. It also lifts our burdens in life. His word remedies our pain and our grief and our loneliness and our sickness, and it provides great help and restoration in our times of trouble. That's what Psalms 119 verse 28 tells us. And that's so important, track with me, because grief and despair will get in the way of you being able to discern God's will. Are you with me? But in the same Bible, we learn to recapture our joy and our peace that the world and our circumstances and sin takes away. And that's so important for us to have and to be confident in because it's God's promise of peace and joy and eternity that is our, it's our fuel, folks, so that we can trust and desire to follow God's will. I'm going to say that again. Knowing that the Bible offers help to lift our burdens is radically important because it's the fact that God promises joy and peace and eternity that sets us up to trust in God's will. It's that hope. It's eternity that says, man, I'm going to trust you in the process. Man, therefore, our first stop in discerning God's will is to turn to the word of God. Are you doing that in your life? Are you opening your Bible and reading it? Are you leaning into your learning and your teaching when I'm preaching and teaching you every Sunday? You got to do that. Okay, here is the second way that we discern our Heavenly Father's 
his heart, his will for us, and is through the Holy Spirit. Man, look for the Holy Spirit to confirm what you have read in this glorious book. Like God nor the Holy Spirit are authors of confusion and division in their interest towards us, folks. So if you ever feel opposed to something you see in Scripture, you can take it to the bank that it's not the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, the Holy Spirit's telling me something different. No, he's not. No, he's not. The Bible promises us that. It's something else inside of you, or dare I say, it's, it's even someone else. It's your own flesh not wanting to submit to what God says is good for you, and you're demanding your own way. You just got to know that, or it's Satan or someone with empty words trying to deceive you, just like Eve was, just like the people on the Titanic were, but rest assured, folks, it's not it's not the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is both co-equal and co-eternal with God and Jesus. And let me just be honest, we have to start reverencing and respecting the Holy Spirit rightly and to stop treating him like he's some stepchild in the Trinity. Stop doing that, folks, because he's so active and he's so trustworthy to do the work that he does in affirming our hearts that every single thing that God says in the Bible is true. He'll do that for you, and he'll do it for me if we open ourselves to him and we stop treating him like a stepchild in the Trinity. We often look, right, and we do this rightly, we often look with so much confidence in the power of God the Father in the creation story because he spoke, he spoke, ah, he breathed, and then the whole earth was created, and we should have that confidence. But we often fail to recognize that the Holy Spirit was equally ruling and reigning all over the place in that same creation story. Did you know that? Did you know that in the first two sentences of our glorious thing we call the Bible, it talks about God the Father and the Holy Spirit before Jesus is even mentioned? You tracking with me? Man, let's, let's take a look at that right now. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All we know that, right? Like God, ooh, God the Father, he's powerful. Did you, did you know what verse 2 said? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was, was over the face of the deep. Ready? And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering and ruling and reigning over the face of the waters. Oh man, how legit is that? I want you to be confident in going to the Holy Spirit. And I say all this because I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is not only the co-agent of creation. Folks, he's the co-agent of God's new creation, and that's you. He is part of that. He is the co-agent of creating you and creating me. That that is earth-shattering, soul-enriching news. So when you are stepping into your new identity with all these new activities, the Holy Spirit is right there to help confirm and to affirm in our hearts that the Bible is to be trusted and is true all the way. And that, that is a gift, a sweet gift from the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is equally the author of the Bible, we can search for him. Are you tracking with me? We can search for him in the moments where we need more confidence to gladly submit to God's will in the scripture. 
So when you're struggling to believe things that God says in the scripture, you can turn and say, Holy Spirit, I know that you, you created me alongside our, my heavenly Father. And I know that you are the co-agent and the co-author of this book. And Jesus promised that you were given to me so that I would be able to have confidence and conviction when I can't do it on my own. So Holy Spirit, help me to see and to believe that these words are true. You see that prayer? The Holy Spirit's available for you. So when you spend whole seasons and struggling with the thing with struggling with things and then all of a sudden you stop struggling with them hey attribute that to the holy spirit's work he did that folks he closed that gap when you reflect back on um, seasons and areas in your life where things just things just didn't make sense to you in the bible like you just didn't get it remember that like man i don't get what i don't get this text i don't get what god's saying and then now you look and, and, it, and it all makes sense to you. You, you have you had that experience something that didn't make sense to you in god's word and now you've grown and it makes perfect sense to you Folks, don't be secular thinking that you're just now older and wiser and more mature. Don't be secular like that. Attribute what you now get to the Holy Spirit. He did that. He closed that gap. Remember, there are people that are more wise than you, more intelligent. They have fancier degrees that still don't get this thing called the Bible, folks. They don't get this thing in the text that you get so clearly. Therefore, it's not because you're older or wiser or more experienced. Attribute the work to the Holy Spirit. He closes the gaps, and he's worthy of our praise. Okay, what's the third way that we can go about confidently discerning God's will? So we do it by the word of God. We do it by turning to the Holy Spirit. And finally, we become discerner, discerners of God's will, his, his desires for us, through his church. Folks, we turn to his church. That's the people of God, folks, the men and the women of God that God has so graciously given to you and me in the context of covenant family and community. In other words, it's about, it's about going through the process of discerning God's will together. We are not to be alone. We are not to be isolated. We are called to live in glad unity. So it's about going through the process of discerning God's will together, leveraging each other's relationships and our experiences with God to help embolden your confidence and your faith all the more. Because as much as possible, there should be oneness and unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, remember, oh man, chapter 4 of Ephesians, in the decisions that accord with God's word amongst God's people. So once we've intentionalized God's word First, as our primary stop. And then we've opened ourselves to the Holy Spirit's compelling and convincing um, and encouraging work. And we then turn to the people of God and we work together to discern God's will. That should be our glorious bow tie of discerning God's will. It's the cherry on top that you got to have on that, on that milkshake. In fact, Jesus, which is James's little brother, in case you didn't know, Jesus, uh, uh, I mean James, Jesus' little brother says in chapter four of his book, don't buy anything, don't go to any place, don't work for that man, don't work for that woman, don't sell anything, don't do anything without saying, is it the Lord's will for me to go here to work for this person to eat this food or anything? Is it the Lord's will? So we got to start reading and asking and praying in such a way that says, is it God's will for me to go to this college? Or am I just trying to like fit into what everybody else is doing? 
Why am I doing it? Is it God's will for me? Like, is it God's will for me to move to this new location or new city? Or am I perhaps running away from something or chasing something that God does not have for me? Or maybe like this, like, is it God's will that I date this person? Or am I just lonely in trying to fill a gap that God has been working on that he first wants, wants to have? In fact, if you're dating someone right now, you need to ask yourself, Lord, is it your will that I'm with this man? Or with this or with this woman and if something in your heart right now clamped up when I asked you to do that and you are resistance to seeking your um, excuse me and you are resistant to seeking your heavenly father about who you are dating or you're contemplating and dating man that's a huge warning sign that you are not submitting that relationship or that desired relationship to your heavenly father and I'm just letting you know right now that something wrong is up inside of you. Listen, God is so faithful to guide you and to direct you, and that's why you need to seek him above all things when making decisions in your life, because he will give you a peace, folks, that surpasses all understanding when you follow his will. And man, we all want that peace of God. We opened up the book of Ephesians with Paul laying it out, that the hope of this book is grace and peace to all saints that are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 and 2. We're just camping out and learning the connection of this text and learning how to put the whole book together. And when we have peace from God in our lives, folks, it's most likely because we're walking in accordance with God's with God's will, and you're probably doing the right things. But if there's spiritual angst and discord going on within you, you got to stop and ask yourself, where, where did my peace go? you got to ask because that's probably a warning sign that you've taken a step or two away from God's heart and his discerning will for your life. And the key word is spiritual angst and discord, not fleshly angst and discord. Are you tracking? Don't confuse your disobedience and your lack of desire to do what God says as a legitimate reason to, to, to stop doing the things that God's saying to stop doing or to, or to not go about doing the things that God says you need to do. That's called running away from your call and your identity, folks. I'm talking about spiritual angst and spiritual discord, a type of soul unrest that we have at times when we're walking in an opposite way and contrary to God. Therefore, who are we? We are a people called to discern God's will by reading and obeying the Bible as our first stop when making decisions. This sets us up to find assurances from the Holy Spirit who co-authored and is the co-agent of the Bible with God every step of the way. We are to attribute worship-filled credit. You hear me? We are to attribute worship-filled credit credit to the Holy Spirit whenever Scripture becomes clear and easier to follow. As our flesh is rightly subdued, praise Christ, we are to properly associate any other feelings of disagreement with Scripture as things of our flesh or the tempting power of Satan, not the Holy Spirit who never, never stands in argument or contradiction with the infallible word of God. 
And finally, we are to, we are to discern God's will together as encouragement to one another's faith and endurance. Okay, let's look at verse 18, our final focus verse today. Look carefully or with circumspectly then how you walk, not as unwise, or meaning a fool, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, now we talked about not being drunk a few weeks ago in the postcard of the should and the should nots of the Christian life, right? We kind of just laid out a beautiful, short, little 3,000-foot perspective on drinking. Okay, so here's the deal. We are human beings, and we are passionate people. So we have to walk carefully with great circumspection so that we can be wise with all these passions and all these desires that we have so we don't fall into foolish and unwise things. Listen, folks, we are to use our passion for the radical purpose of being so filled and so stoked and so excited about God. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that over the next three weeks in a real way. I can't wait. So this exhortation to not get drunk with alcohol, folks, it really does apply to so much more than literally wine and drinking, doesn't it? Indeed, there are many things, in the, that, the, things that the Bible would deem as debauchery. You see, the deeper implications of this verse is to not overdo anything, to not engage disproportionately in things that would lead us towards finding our ultimate pleasure and source of comfort and satisfaction in activities as a replacement for God. That's the intent. That's the intent of what Paul's saying on behalf of God. So really, this verse is saying don't overdo things disproportionately and definitely don't do it with alcohol so whether that's eating or tv or or smoking or or forms of pills or whatever it is whatever pleasure whatever habit don't overdo it don't do it disproportionately because there are so many things beyond alcohol that will enslave us and deceive us as ultimate satisfaction and comfort but they weren't created for that folks and that's why we have to remember that there's no high like the most high in jesus i'm gonna say it again there is no high no drink no drug no crack no no ecstasy there's no high like the most high in jesus Christ. But since this verse does specifically intentionalize a conversation about alcohol and wine, let's go ahead and lean into this conversation because I imagine we're going to be ruffling some people's, some people's feathers today, but that's okay. We're going to be faithful to the text because let me be honest, there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of experiences surrounding alcohol that have shaped a lot of our thoughts, processes, and a lot of our conclusions about this this subject. And since, there's, and since there's so much confusion around this subject, and there really shouldn't be, and there's so much pain because of this substance, and I'm so brokenhearted about that, if you have experienced pain, let's lay down a few ground rules about drinking so we can work together in unity on this conversation. Because folks, God has really been clear about this area, and I want some, some healing and some growth and some, some perspective God's perspective on this conversation. So here we go. 
Remember, drinking isn't a sin unless you are underage and you're breaking the law, you are getting drunk and you are not in your sound mind, or you're causing someone else to stumble. Those are the three things. Drinking is not a sin unless you're underage, you're breaking the law, you're getting drunk, you're not in your sound mind, and you're causing someone else to stumble. Those three things should be able to radically tell you if it's right or if it's wrong to drink. If it's causing you to do one of those three things, you should avoid it, period. But because this is such a sensitive, controversial subject, and it should not be, folks, it should not be, but because it is, and because we finally have boots on the ground, yes, in chapter 5, I'm going to give you a lot more pastoral support here, because this really divides churches and denominations, and it shouldn't be, because God's Word is clear. So, in just a moment, we're going to fillet open the three main stances that we all take about alcohol. Every single one of us line up in one of these three categories, and we're going to look at that in a, in a moment. But first, I want you to know that wherever you land in one of these three stances, it's most likely being influenced based upon the reality that you've either had a painless and normal relationship with alcohol. Oh man, eyes up here with your mind so clear. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Wherever you land, it's probably because you're either having a painless and normal relationship with alcohol, or you've had a painful and a harmful relationship with alcohol. Let me explain. You've either had a painful and a, I mean, a painless and a normal relationship with alcohol, and that means no one's really probably been drunk in your family, in your friendship circles. It didn't affect you too bad. You probably never really experienced any type of abuse or losing your home or getting a DUI or something tragic that's happened in your family or someone you love or some acquaintance. You probably went to church and they didn't make it a really big deal. They didn't prohibit it. They didn't teach about it. It was just a non-conversation, and you just may not see why the church is even spending this much time on it in this sermon, and you're like, why are we doing this? This is not even an important conversation. It's just, it's just a beer. It's just drinking. Or you've had a painful, harmful relationship with alcohol, and that probably means that you or someone in your family or someone you care about, man, they've experienced some sadness and some pain around it. Maybe you have yourself, and you probably, you've probably saw, you've experienced some really bad and terrible things, and for you, this whole conversation is just weird because you're trying to wrap your mind around how anybody else could not think this is not an important conversation, and that is how could somebody think it's not a big deal? And of course, you think, man, Alcohol is terrible. It's horrible. It should, be, it should be just removed from the planet. So whatever our orientation is in our lives is really affecting how we think about this. Okay, so let me teach you now these three main stances that we all fall into um, relatively. And if you need some more resources, man, I'd love to spend some one-on-one pastoral time helping you to think through this and, and, and sharing my resources that have helped me to think through this, okay? So here we go. I want people to be freed up. I want us to be Christians, real Bible-believing student learners who can look at the Word of God. Okay, here we go. Number one, you're, you're either in the prohibitionist stance that means that you believe that alcohol should be prohibited, totally removed. It's terrible. It's forbidden. It's bad. There's no category for it. That's the prohibitionist stance. I personally believe that this is the most unbiblical stance that you can come up with out of all three stances we're going to talk about because the Bible simply does not say 
that drinking is a sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible records and instructs the opposite. You see, in the Bible, it says that drinking was used on many occasions in the Old and the New Testament as worship unto God. Did you know that? It was a type of celebration and joyful occasion between God and his people. In fact, if you were, uh, in fact, if you think that even touching alcohol and drinking even a little bit of alcohol is a sin, man, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, I will not drink from the vine or I will not drink wine again until I return. So the fact that he said that means that he's already admitting that he's drunk wine. And if drinking is a sin, then that means that Jesus sinned. And if he sinned, our whole faith falls apart. And we know that's ridiculous, right? So simply saying that drinking is a sin categorically and that it should be prohibited, this prohibit, this prohibitionist stance, man, it's not biblical. We can't faithfully camp out here, folks. Are you with me? Believing that drinking is categorically prohibited is simply unbiblical. And I know that may be so hard and so triggering for some people that and you're listening today and, 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 and you're, you're having emotions come up right now. And, and I'm just inviting you to say, hey, don't be so religious, so legalistic, so traditional, or maybe you've been an unfortunate victim in some way here. Hey, with all my heart, especially if you've been a victim of some category with this, this, this thing called alcohol. Listen, I want to gently and pastorally call you out and call myself out so that we don't fall into the trap of being a traditionalist, a religious person, or even a struggling victim towards, I want you to be a Bible-believing, a Christ-exalting, uh, I submit to the Word of God knowing type of Christian. And that means that God's Word needs to be the compass for our decisions, folks. And we got to take seriously what God says. We just simply can't land faithfully, biblically believing that, that drinking is categorically sinful. It's not. And if you've ever been taught that, I want you to know that they're wrong. And that's empty words. Because God's word is clear that the, pro, the prohibitionist stance, it's unbiblical. Okay, so here's the next one. Here's the second stance that you may fall into. It's the, absti- um, the, absti- the abstinence stance. Are you with me? It's the abstinence stance. Now, this is the stance that I personally line up with and I submit my life to. You see, I don't drink because I love God and I love my neighbor. And while I love my liberty, I love my liberty and freedom. My liberty to drink is not worth the compromise it may cause myself and others. Man, do you remember that verse we just talked about earlier from, from Jesus and Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew? I'm going to talk about it again. Let's put that up. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness that's being increased, the love of many will grow cold. So let me say to you again, I love my liberty and I love my freedom, but drinking is not worth it because I love people. And I don't want to engage in things that makes it harder for me to love people when I know that this this substance is so difficult. And, and track with me. And for my specific amount of budgeted dollars and for my specific amount of budgeted days that God's given me, I'm just going to abstain from drinking. I'm not going to do it because I can't. 
but I'm choosing not to. I don't want to spend my budget at days and dollars on this drink, not because of the law, but because of love. Not because of the law, but because of love. So the Rochelle family asked for me and my house. We completely abstain from alcohol because we want to love people so well and we don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone. And frankly, we don't want to spend all of our energy and time trying to discern who's the right person that it's not a stumbling block for and who's the wrong person that it is. Man, we just say we'll eliminate the category. We've looked at the positives and the negatives, but Pastor Brandon, drinking is really good for your cardiovascular blood pressure. Okay, yeah, I've done my research. I've looked at the positives. I've looked at the negatives. We've counted the costs. We've prayed it through, and we've said it's not, it's just not worth it. There's too much pain and sin. The amount of bad things connected to alcohol far supersede any positives it gives. So for the Rochelle family, we refuse to play and engage in this game of drinking. And let me tell you, it's a great place to land, folks. It's the safest place you can land. It's so biblical. There are texts oozing and raining all over the New Testament about not being a stumbling block by not engaging and using your liberty in a way that causes people to stumble. So I want to invite you into the stance of abstaining from it. But there's one more category, and it's the moderationist stance. And that means that you're doing things in moderation. You're not prohibiting it, you're not, but you're also not abstaining from it. You're saying, I'm going to engage here, but I'm going to do it with moderation. And I want to be very, very clear today because I'm God's man. I'm not my own man. And so this is a very, very biblical place that you can land in. But let me tell you, eyes up here, eyes up here. Let me tell you, you really have to have all your cylinders of self-control, wisdom, and discernment. They better be operating well, folks. Because if you're, because your drinking needs to be at the right time, not at two in the morning. Are you tracking with me? There's no reason to be drinking at two in the morning. Your drinking needs to be for the right reasons, like righteous, God-centered celebrations with Jesus right in the middle of Jesus, God-glorifying things, not because you're bored or you're mad or you're sad and it's a vice that you're turning to to medicate yourself. Not going to work. Your drinking needs to be at the right place, not at bars and sleazy places and rendezvous and avenues. It better be, it better be at the right place. And your drinking needs to be alongside the right people, true biblical Christians doing it together in glad unity for righteous, redemptive purposes and not ungodly company, drinking for superficial reasons. You better have those categories lined up, folks. And let me tell you, your heart has to be all the way in the right place to be a moderationist. Because if you're not operating fully on all cylinders at the right time, at the right place, with with the right reasons, and definitely with the right people, I promise you, and the Bible promises you, that only turmoil is ahead of you. Because if I'm being honest, the most, the majority of Christians, especially in our society today, are trying to camp out here, and they're trying so hard to be a moderationist. But the reality is, only a fraction of us really are equipped to be a moderationist. Because I want to remind you that Paul just got done giving us a strong exhortation to be careful not to fall into drunkenness, which means he's clearly identifying that this is a radically difficult thing to do. 
to be a moderationist. It is not the norm. It's for the few. And I believe that with all my heart. He's saying this is a tough thing to do. So it's a slippery slope, slip, a slippery slope folks. You've got to be careful. And remember, above all things, this is a matter of the heart. This is a matter of the heart. So you really have to examine where your heart is, not only regarding drinking, but really any activity that you're engaging in that could be, lead to disproportionate engagement. So if you're like, man, I just want to check my Facebook again and again and again, well, 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 why? And if your answer to me is like, well, Pastor Brandon, I'm addicted to my likes and my shares, and I just have to see what's going on. And then when I, when I don't look, I get kind of nervous and anxious. And what's going on with people? I just need to know what, what's going on with people. Are they paying attention to me? I want them to know what's going on in my life. Folks, you probably have a disproportionate problem going on, and you need to address it and know your limits with social media. You got to be able to examine your heart, or maybe you're like, uh, I keep checking the weather over and over and over again, and I think I have a little bit of an OCD tendency. Well, what's going on? And you're like, I, I think I'm a little bit of a control freak. I, I really want my 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 son's birthday party to go perfectly, and I'm checking it 50 times over the last three weeks. Well, folks, you're probably dealing with a control issue, and it's probably playing out in other areas of your life and in your relationships. And you got to give up that control, and you got to let God do the work in you. Or maybe you, you are obsessed with your money. You keep checking your bank account disproportionately. you got to ask yourself why. And if your answer is like, well, Pastor Brandon, I need to know how much money I have. i got to know how much money I have. i got to make sure nothing's missing. I, I, that's my hope. That's my security. Hey, you're probably having a, a problem of loving money too much. You're putting your trust and your hope there instead of in God. And you're probably engaging with your stewardship of money disproportionately. So whatever you're trying to do and whatever you're going to do next, before you go about using and drinking that bottle or smoking that cigarette or reading that book or doing whatever you're going to do, you need to check your heart with the Lord. And if you see and you notice that you're using whatever you're using to mask and to cope and to heal and to distract and to numb you out, to hide away from whatever you're not dealing with, Paul is telling you, don't do that, but instead choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh man, we're going to get into this filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't do those activities as cheap substitutes for the genuine joy and peace or the relief and the healing that you're so desperately after. Don't sell out, but be careful, be wise, and go find that in Jesus. Okay, so here are my five final thoughts on alcohol to set us up for success. When we think about being a pro, um, someone who prohibits alcohol, someone who abstains from alcohol, or someone who does it with moderation. Here's my five final thoughts. Number one, all drunkenness is a sin, Period. If you're drunk and you're not in your sound mind and it's altering you even a little bit, if you're a little bit tipsy, if you are a little bit tipsy, it's a sin. You do not allow something to deviate you from the creative purpose in your mind to think upon things like Jesus. Period. Number two, the Bible is crystal clear that if you get drunk or you use it in an unbiblical way, every type of sin becomes more capable of taking you out. Are you tracking with me? This is a gateway drug to deeper problems and sin. You have, 
You have to know that. In unbiblical ways or when you're doing it with unrighteous people for unrighteous reasons at unrighteous times. Number three, alcohol has highly addictive properties. This is true facts, and it's not an opinion. you got to know that. It is one of the most highly addictive substances that we have out there. Do you want to engage with that? Are you equipped to be a moderationist, or do you need to abstain from it categorically? And folks, but we can't live in the pro, we can't be prohibiting it and being judgmental like that. It has to be biblical, our stance. Next one. Number four, don't break civil or relational or familial laws for the pleasure of alcohol. Don't do it. Okay, this is what I mean by that. Don't break, like maybe your organization doesn't let you, thinks that they don't want you to do the drinking, or maybe in your home, there's people that are just not comfortable with it. Don't, or your church, like don't break familial, civil, relational laws because of your personal desire to drink. Like don't be selfish and self-centered. Don't be that kind of Christian. Do not break civil, organizational, family, friendship circles because I want to drink and I'm going to stand on that when you clearly see that's a stumbling block for someone. Don't, don't do that. And then number five, set a good and firm and consistent example to others. Man, care about what you look like to people. Be a glad imitator of Christ in everything that you do. Okay, so let's land the plane on the last few words of this verse regarding being filled with the Spirit so we can be set up for the next couple weeks as we really camp out and talk about this in a real way. Let's, 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 let's think about that. And I just want you to know when it says to but be filled with the Spirit, I want you to know that you don't need to convince God to fill you up. That's going to be good news. You do not need to convince God to fill you up. You do not have to earn anything or convince the Holy Spirit of anything to be awakened in him or for him to fill you up. Because there's going to be certain camps out there that are going to try to convince you that you have to do the right thing and have the right prayers and have the right activities all perfectly lined up to convince the Holy Spirit to fill you up. But hear me out. The Holy Spirit needs no convincing to fill you up. It's you that needs convincing that you are filled up. Oh, man, I'm going to say it again. The Holy Spirit needs no convincing to fill you up. You're the one that needs convincing that you already are filled up. Oh, that's going to be good. Because the Holy Spirit is not some spiritual force. He's a person. He's not a spiritual force. He's a person. And he loves you, and he loves me, and he needs no convincing, no extra motivation than what has already been done on the cross, and because of the love he's had for you from the foundation of the world. Because receiving the Holy Spirit is about beginning to, uh, beginning to fill his filling presence. Are you with me? I want you to see that. Stepping into the reality that you're filled with the Spirit is all about filling in here, that you are so filled with the Spirit. You do not have to waste your life and all of your energy trying to go around, I need to be filled with the Spirit, I need to be filled with the Spirit. No, folks, we're going to go on a radical journey over the next couple weeks about learning what it means to fill, that we are so filled 
with the Holy Spirit because he's saying to you and me right now, I'm ready and I'm available to be your strong hope and your strong tower, your rock, your foundation that, that so many beautiful things can be built upon if you'll let me. You've got to learn to fill me as I am filled within you. And man, I can't wait to talk about that with each and every one of you as my family in Christ. And that's a great place for us to stop and for us to pray. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. And we're so thankful for this glorious book that's filled with all these adjectives and pronouns and and, and predicates and subjects, and they come together based upon your wisdom. We call it Holy Scripture. And in Holy Scripture, you give us all these things about our identity, and we learn that we're chosen and adopted and forgiven and redeemed and, and so wealthy and so valuable. We get to be so stoked to be in your kingdom, God. But you did more than that. You started lavishing good gifts on us. You gave us all these equipment so that we wouldn't start this whole activity, all these activities at a deficit. Every single activity and action item you've given us, we start with a bank account that's full. We don't start with a deficit. Therefore, we get to do it joyfully and not legalistically. Now, Lord, we just learned about having a discerning posture about your will. And we learned about the trappings of drunkenness. So my hope, Lord, that we started with remains true now, that we would reverence and respect and, and, and have transformative expectation that you're going to do a work in this area of discerning your will. May the people of God far and close of RCC, the people here, the people across multiple state lines, may we become more enthusiastic participants in discerning your will. May it be so. And Lord, may we develop mature stances towards alcohol or anything else so that we can be agents and imitators of you. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace, Redemption City Church.